What's going on, everybody? This is the Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Really jazzed about this one. Today, our guest is Glenn Gonzalez from Obsidian Capital Group. Glenn wrote the book, Maintenance Man to Millionaire, because that's what he is. He's the maintenance man who became a multi-millionaire by investing in real estate. He went from being an apartment maintenance manager to now owning 4,500 apartment units. Just awesome. He's a great guy to talk to. And we share, he shares a lot of the lessons that he learned along the way that allowed him to make that shift and get onto the owner side rather than just being the employee at, uh, at these properties he, he was working at. We learned about, again, his story of making that transition, what he thinks about the market today and just so many awesome lessons, you guys. So if you're somebody out there, a busy professional who either wants to actively invest in real estate or passively invest and needs those lessons from someone who has just a ton of experience in real estate in multiple market cycles, you're going to love it. For those of you who don't know, I'm your host, Taylor Lode. I'm a multifamily real estate syndicator, real estate investor. I buy multifamily real estate with passive investors and split the return. Love bringing these lessons to you. Hope you're enjoying the show. Without any further ado, here we go with Glenn Gonzalez. Glenn, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Taylor. Glad to be here. Glad to be part of your show. Happy to be talking with you. For the folks out there who don't know about Maintenance Man and Millionaire, could you introduce yourself to our audience, please? You bet. Thanks, Taylor. Uh, my name is Glenn Gonzalez. I started in the industry about 30 years ago in the apartment industry, and I started as a maintenance guy on accident. It wasn't even by choice. I was going to college full-time and, and working full-time, and my wife at that time had was got a job as a leasing consultant, and while I was at work, she called me and said, hey, they're really behind on work orders. Do you want to come help out a little bit? And I thought it would be a temporary thing. I'm like, <laughs> sure, I'll come help. So I did, uh, and, and one day led to a week, and then a month, and then a couple months, and a few months, and before you knew it, I was working maintenance, and I, and I quit my job at the Marriott. Uh, I, was a, I was a waiter, of all things, while I was going to college, uh, like a lot of people do. And before you knew it, I was a little jealous of the people that were working inside, Taylor. All the leasing agents and the managers, they're like talking on the phone and showing apartments, and I'm out in the cold picking up trash and hauling paint and letting people in after they get locked out in the middle of the night. And oh. I'm like, I want their job. <laughs> so that's, that was how I got my foot in the door in, in multifamily. And I'll go into more detail later on the show, but um, that's kind of how I got started. But, you know, thankfully you progressed to where you are today. Can you tell us about uh, where your business stands right now? Sure. So I'm currently the CEO of Obsidian Capital. I have a couple of partners on there and we syndicate deals. And we, matter of fact, we have a, a small 50 unit deal that we're raising money on right now that we're going to build brand new construction. Cool. And that deal, it's very interesting because people are like, are you nervous about what's going on in the economy and environment? Ironically, we'd made decisions months ago that we would raise money from investors and pay cash for a new construction build rather than going and getting a construction loan. Wow. We did the math on that. And, you know, after paying loan origination fees and appraisals and 
you have to prepay some interest reserves with the lender while during construction. You add up all that stuff and we're better off just giving all that to investors. And at the end of the day, we're going to own this apartment complex free and clear with no debt and the investors will do very well. And that was all before all this, you know, disruption with the virus hit the economy and now banks are a little unsure. And I mean, I'm glad that we'd made that decision way back and we're giving preferred returns to investors and they're losing money in the stock market. So it really, it's not a bad timing's everything, right? People are looking for deals. So. Wow. So they're, you know, those investors are going to be saying, can you take more of my money out of the stock market and put it in real estate? Yeah. Yeah. We even have people that have their own self-directed IRAs that have put money in the, in the deal and we're still doing the raise, but yeah, there's people like, uh, can I put in my, my Roth IRA? And we're like, sure you can. So it's kind of fun. So, but to answer your question, I, I, I built the portfolio up to about 4,500 units and owned my own property management company. And we managed 2,000 units for a friend of mine. So we had under our, our responsibility under property management, 6,000 units, 4,500 units of which, you know, uh, my business partner and I owned. And that was just, you know, not, you know, recently, uh, we started selling some of those uh, buildings because we felt like we were at the top of the market. And the previous partner that I had that owned those, he wanted to go do his own thing and I wanted to go do my own thing. So the best thing to do is we just sold off the assets and it's turned out to be pretty good. So starting from maintenance man to, I was, a, I, I finally, I didn't tell you the story, but maybe I can. Let's uh, go for it. I told the, the regional manager came to visit while I was a maintenance guy. And I'm like, I want to be a manager. They get to talk on the phone and work on the computer. And I don't know that I want to keep, you know, painting apartments and fixing toilets the rest of my life. They're like, well, that's all well and good, but aren't you the maintenance guy? I'm like, yeah, I'm the maintenance guy. And they're like, okay, well, if something comes up, don't call us. We'll call you. I'm like, oh right. man, I know. Right. But Hey, you got to raise your hand and ask. Right. And that's what yep. I did. Well, uh, a few months later, they called and said, hey, uh, you aren't going to believe this. We got a new property contract and it's only 60 units. It can't really afford a full-time manager or a full-time maintenance. We were thinking maybe you could do both. I'm like, part-time manager, part-time maintenance? I'll take it. So that's how I got my foot from being a maintenance guy uh, into the management door to be a property manager. And it and that was a, a big learning experience for me. I My hat's off to you know, very effective property managers and, and hand, hats off to my maintenance friends out there. And, you know, if you, I've, I've realized over my career, uh, you can't have a successful property manager without a successful maintenance guy and vice versa. Hmm. They go hand in hand. So anyway, I, I stayed in that role for a little while and learned a lot actually, uh, especially what a bad maintenance guy was. <laughs> you know, <when laughs> apartment complex, and they, and they sign a lease. One of the forms they used to have to fill out uh, back in the day was this move-in condition report, right? They want to make sure everything works right. Well, they would fill it out and turn it back into the manager. And I'd look at it and like, oh, man, one of the burners doesn't work on the stove. Right. Work order. Oh, man, the toilet seems to be running a little bit when they moved in. So, huh, folks, not right. I better go fix that. Anyway, so I would go back to the apartment after they moved in and I was hoping nobody would be home, you know, knock on the door, maintenance, come in. And there they were like, Hey, what are you doing here? I'm like, I'm here to fix some of the work orders. And like, I thought you were the manager. I'm like, I am, but I'm also the maintenance guy. <laughs> right? And then they're like, well, so you, so you got this ready before we moved in. I said, mm, yeah. And then we both realized at that moment that 
we both came to the same conclusion. I wasn't a very good maintenance guy. <laughs> oh man. He knew it. Yeah. And I knew it anyway. So a little awkward, but anyway, but I learned a lot, right? That's where I learned uh, that, you know, you're not going to be successful if, if the units aren't made ready and, you know, bad reviews and moving experience and everything else. So I had the opportunity. Uh, I turned that property around. It was doing very, very well financially. The boss, uh, asked if there if i would go visit another one of the properties that we managed and uh, not in any official role but just kind of go over there as a peer and talk to the other manager and see why her occupancy wasn't doing very well and so i went and talked to the manager and, and come to find out i was talking to a leasing agent this poor leasing agent had no personality whatsoever taylor i mean <laughs> talk on the phone dry as can be and as we were visiting, I told the manager, I'm like, man, your leasing agent's very good, not very good. She's all offended. She's like, what are you talking about? Of course she's good. And I'm like, man, she has like no personality. And I said, don't take my word for her. Why don't you hire a secret shopper and see how she scores? She's like, I will. I mean, she was out to prove me wrong. And so I got the little secret shopping report and it kind of said the same thing. Inability to connect with, you know, the prospective residents or didn't follow up or had no personality, things of that nature, got a very low score. And I told the manager, I said, you know, manager, this is part of the reason you don't have a very good occupancy is because you got the wrong person doing sales. And you know what I found out, Taylor? The reason she wouldn't make the change is because the leasing agent happened to be her very best friend. Ah. Right? And yeah. so I'm like, I told the other manager, I said, I, I'll be honest with you. It, if you don't make a change there, they're probably going to fire you and make a change there because as a manager, you've got to be able to make those hard decisions and you're too close to your best friend and your best friend's going to get you fired. So she made the change and hired another leasing agent and, and found another role somewhere else for this, for this lady and, and her occupancy started climbing and, and it went right where all the other competitors were at a very healthy market. And, and my boss called like, Hey, good job on that. You know, I mean, impressive. It turned around and thank you. So that was my foot into becoming a regional manager someday. I had my property that I oversaw and then I had some responsibilities on others. And I kind of did that until I rose to the top. I, I was with the fee management company and became the director of operations, which was on a little company that was like the number two, the owner. And me is the, you know, so the president of the company and the owner of the company and then the director of operations, which was me. And it wasn't a very big company. But my boss was also my mentor. You know, he said, if you're going to stay in this industry, you got to get your real estate license because we do fee management. You got to get your CPM designation from the Institute of Real Estate Management. CPM designation for your listeners, certified property manager uh, from IRAM. And so I did those. And then as I was doing all the things he told me to do, I, things were going well and, and he fired me. Oh, like, you're firing me? <laughs> I know. I'm like, why are you firing me? He's like, I realized that I was holding you back from your best potential. Wow. I'm like, so you're going to fire me because you're holding me back? From my, I mean, why don't you just give me notice or something? He's like, you're too comfortable. He's like, you're like a racehorse. You'll get another job. And I was pretty upset until I got another job paying me more money than I was making before <laughs> as a director of operations of that property. And that was for a management company that did development and tax credit. So I went from fee manager to owner, developer, manager, tax credit, and got a great experience there. 
Well, I took that, that mentor's advice, his name was Dale, and, and applied it again after I was with that company for six years. Um, went and got a, another job with a REIT out of Seattle. I was with Real Estate Investment Trust at uh, Equity Residential, is one of the largest, is still one of the larger REITs uh, in the United States and worked as a regional manager for them in, in the Pacific Northwest. And my career was all, I mean, I was all in. I mean, I wanted to be really good at what I wanted to do. As a matter of fact, in my book, Maintenance Man a Millionaire, one of the first chapter talks about the value of you. And that's what I was kind of living is I, I wanted to perfect my craft. I wanted to be really good at what I wanted to do. Um, and while I was in property management, I had a lot of success. I was on the board of uh, directors for the apartment association. I was later nominated and elected the president of the apartment association there. And so I, I was busy and I was loving what I was doing. But Taylor, at the end of the day, you know who was making all the money, the big money? <laughs> Somebody the other owners. than you. It was the owners, right? I was the manager yeah. of the company and I was, you know, crossing T's and dotting I's and leasing apartments. But the big bucks were those people that owned the apartment complex. And that seemed so far out of reach for me. I was a W-2 employee. I had five kids. You know, my wife had three. I had two. And I was paying child support. And Wow. I didn't have two nickels to rub together. But I came across the deal. I knew that if I was ever going to break into the ownership side, I had to um, figure out how to own these apartment complexes. So I found a little 60-unit deal. And then I went to my second mentor, John Gibson. He also donated his time to the Apartment Association. And I said, hey, John, I'm looking at this small deal in um, Tacoma, Washington. We look at it because you, you own a lot of apartments and you're really smart and I trust you and you're a good friend. So he looked at it and he's like, you know, the numbers seem solid. You'll probably do okay. I said, okay, just okay. He's like, you really, I got a better deal. I'm like, you have a better deal? Where's that? He's like, it's a little 44 unit deal that I've completely neglected that I've owned for years. I said, well, why would you neglect one of your own apartment complexes? Cause it's 44 units. I've owned it for years. I could care less about it. I'm building these brand new class A high-end apartments and on the water. And I'm like, yeah, I'll go look at it. And sure enough, he was right. It was a, it was like a gym, right? Totally neglected. Units weren't made ready. The manager was smoking weed. You know, I mean, it was just, it was just a disaster of a run property. And I said, you know what? I'll buy it. So we agreed on a price, which I thought was extremely low. He said he would carry a note back for me. And wow. I'm like, financing. But you know what he said to me, Taylor? He's like, you need to come up with $150,000. You know, and for me, I didn't have $150,000. The kingly well, sum. Yeah. He, he might as well have asked me for $10 million. I mean, what the heck? But then I started doing what you do, Taylor, and what other people do, you know, it's like, go talk to investors. Mm -hmm. So, you know, who I talked to, I talked to my boss, who's super smart lady and my, uh, one of the vendors that we did a lot of work with. And I said, Hey, do you guys want to go in on this apartment complex with me? We've got to come up with some money down payment. I've already got the financing lined up. It's a great deal. So they both went and looked at it, you know, independent of each other. And like, yeah, you're right. We could turn this thing around and fix it. Let's buy it. So I said, we need 150,000. We can go in and be partners, a third, a third, a third. You put up 75,000 and you put up 75,000 and I'll put up zero and we'll have the, the down payment. 
And they're like, well, that sounds great, except for your math doesn't really work. <laughs> I said, they're like, so how does that work? You know, you, uh, you want to be equal partners, but you don't want to put any money in it. And I'm like, well, I'll be, I'll be honest with you. I don't have any money. I found the deal, found the financing. I know we're going to make a lot of money. You guys get paid before I get paid. So, you know, if we make a profit, you'll get your investment back and then we'll split it after that, a third, a third, a third. I'm like, okay. And guess what, Taylor, that little 44 unit deal, we bought it and we sold it about 18 months later for a million dollars more than we paid for it. Nice. That was my very first syndicated deal with two people. I had to raise $150,000 and, and, and made money. That was the most money I'd ever seen in my entire life. And that's what got me hooked. And I was hooked on buying and being in real estate from that point forward. Uh, and it, it opened my eyes a little bit, but I was still, although that was a great deal, a lot of things happened back then. You know, I lived in Washington and, and I made some money on that. My wife and I bought and invested in some rental properties. And then the crash of 2008 and 2009 came and I had leveraged everything. My house I lived in, I had an expensive house and I was driving fancy cars with big loans and, mm. and then I, I, I got laid off my job and I'm like, now what? So not only did I get laid off my job, but 10,000 people at Microsoft got laid off their job and Boeing laid off 10,000 employees and Washington Mutual went out of business. And remember those days, it just, it all came tumbling down. So I went from, wow, this is great to woe is me. <laughs> and Taylor, if you want to stop at any point and ask me questions, you do, because I feel like I'm just rambling on here. Well, yeah, it's, uh, your story is very captivating, right? <laughs> um, and... You know, part of me is curious uh, whether you think that right now with the coronavirus pandemic, whether we're, you know, on the precipice of what happened in, in 2008 in those times, given your, uh, your yeah. perspective. You know, um, that is a great question. And I think I go back and forth and back and forth on my, my feelings on that. Um, and I'll tell you what I'm, what I'm struggling with. First of all, me personally and my wife and my, uh, my kids are all grown. Because of what happened to me back in 2008 and 2009, I now live my, my life much differently than I did back then. Um, I live in a more conservative home than I did back then, even though I make more money now and I paid off my house. Uh, my cars, I, if I can't pay cash for a car, I don't buy that car. And so uh, things have changed so much that now that we're facing this potential crisis, economic crisis, I'm not as worried now because I'm not going to get laid off my job because I have real estate and I've stayed out of, bet, out of debt. And so I feel differently. Now, that's just my own personal situation. Others are not in that same situation and they were today where I, I was, you know, back in 2008, 2009. So with that said, I worry a little bit about people who have purchased apartments or commercial buildings, you know, in the last 12 to 13 months and paid a very high price tag or a low cap rate going in thinking that, you know, the economy will carry them and rents will continue to grow uh, or they would renovate units and push the rents for 150 or 200 or even more, three or $400 more in rent. And I think that this current situation is not going to allow for that to happen, which is going to blow up some people's business plans that had 
put together those deals. Um, about a year ago, year and a half ago, I had syndicated a deal up in Fort Worth and we had raised enough money from investors to put away in a savings account for a rainy day fund. I told the investors we would have a, you know, a working capital X amount of dollars and they all seemed to a little nervous by that. They said it uh, seems a little excessive to have that much of a cushion. Uh, and I told them my experience that I had back in 2008 and 2009. And I said, it's always better to raise a little extra money and have a rainy day fund than to really just do the bare minimums. And thank goodness I did that because those same people that said to me, hey, Glenn, that seems like a, a stretch to have that much extra working capital now are calling me saying, thank you. That was mm. wise because if my residents don't pay rent or I'm only able to collect, call it 60 or 70% of the rent because the other got laid off, uh, I can cover the mortgage payment out of that checking account for three or four or five months and still be okay. So I really protected the investors by doing that. Makes it more difficult to raise money, makes it more difficult to, to raise uh, and find good deals when you're overfunding a little bit. But that was a strategy, glad we did it. Now, today, right, are there opportunities today? Like I said, we're building a small 50 unit deal in North Austin uh, and we partnered with somebody that's going to build it for cost instead of marking it up. He's a contractor, he's gonna build it for, he wants to be our partner and we said, you build it for cost, wow. we'll give you ownership. So not only did he write a check as an investor, he also was building it for cost as a partner. And we're able to buy that uh, and get it built with no loan in this environment and investors will still get a preferred return on their money. So there are opportunities there, but you've got to kind of leverage around the current environment. Uh, you know, I'm not putting together any value add deals. I'm not even looking at any value add deals. Um, let me back up for a second too on that other deal that I was talking about building. It's a no frills property. A lot of properties that have come out of the ground have beautiful swimming pools and big leasing offices and workout facilities and gated community and lots of activities. You know, not that those are bad or terrible investments or, or anything, but really when those people want to save on rent, they want to go stay somewhere nice and live in something maybe a little more affordable. Nobody's building the class, what I call class B new construction or a, or a new property with less frills. And that's what we're building. A friend of mine built one and he only built 20 units uh, about a mile and a half from where our project is. And he leased that sucker up in six weeks. Wow. Yeah. So if he could do that with 20 units, we could certainly do this with 50 units. So pretty excited about that. But that's just kind of navigating around this current environment. Um, I think that, uh, honestly, I think that the economy is going to struggle for a little while. And, you know, for every, I, I spoke to a wise gentleman that put on a podcast and he said, um, you know, there, he could find 10 articles that say that we're going to bounce back very rapidly through this and he'll go pull them. He says, I can also find 10 articles that will say we're going into a terrible recession slash potential depression, you know? Yep. And so he's like, so who knows, right? I mean, who knows? Uh, my personal belief is if people would just stay home and quit spreading it to one another, we'd all be better off. And this could be already <laughs> quit running around and spreading it to each other. <laughs> so that's true. 
just everybody do your for your listeners just do your part it's just temporary it could be just temporary if we just do our part so well at the end of the day you know temporary is just a, a time scale right if we yeah. fast forward i don't know two years we'll you know this in the, is all going to be in the rearview mirror but we don't know what the next two years are going to look like and that's that's the question and and i'm glad you mentioned you know your experience of being conservative and what some people would consider, and I don't agree with this, but so what some people would consider, like you said, kind of over raising for your deal just to have extra working capital. Um, and I'm glad you, that you quantified that too, because that was going to be one of my follow-up questions is what do you consider conservative enough? How long do you need to be prepared to say, cover the mortgage? Uh, what occupancy levels, you know, would you really look at? Because, yeah, let's be real. Nobody has underwritten their multifamily deals for a pandemic where nobody is working. That's right. Nobody in the world underwrote yeah. for that. That's right. And uh, and if they underwrote that, it, none of the numbers would work. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. You're never going to buy anything. Right. So, yeah, uh, it's a, just a really interesting time. I, I put 170 units under contract um, recently, uh, also up in Dallas and uh, that property is only 70% occupied and, you know, we found some investors that want to go in and we're just going to pay cash for that whole property too. Wow. And it can go down to 60%. You know, it can go down to 40%. We'd still be okay because we'll have no debt, but our basis in it. And that's, I think the, the question that you have to talk about in today's environment, you've heard the phrase, you know, you make your money when you buy it right. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, so, you know, you look at basis and you go in and, and how much are you getting the real estate for net net after your all in cost. And that's the number you look at and see if you can weather the storm on that number. And that's kind of what we're doing today. And we're leveraging around the banks because I think the banks, some of the bridge lenders are sitting on the sidelines or they're becoming ultra conservative or they may charge a little extra in interest because it's a risky time. So all of those variables make it very unfavorable to Taylor, you and I, and other syndicators that are putting deals together. So my advice is be patient right now. Um, there will be deals that will come to the table from the people that overpaid. Uh, there'll be deals uh, that will weather the storm because folks had either raised rainy day funds or their basis was okay, right? So they can, they can go through that. But there's also, Taylor, a, a very, in interesting variable that we've never dealt with before. And that's this $2.2 million stimulus that's kind of helping people stay employed, you know, to, to employers to keep paying paychecks. I was surprised Taylor uh, at our property in Fort Worth. We had already collected probably 90 to 95% of the rent for the month wow. by the fifth. And we were, we were amazed and that occurred on two or three of my properties. So maybe the worst hasn't hit us, but, they made available to us, Fannie has made available to borrowers and Freddie made available to some forbearance. So if you've been affected by the, by the virus and you could show that you've been affected, then they're going to give you some forbearance. They're not going to forgive you of your mortgage payment. You got to pay <laughs> it back within 12 months, but, but they're, they, they didn't have that before in 2008, 2009, people were getting foreclosed on and they were taking properties. And so that's not occurring right now. None of that's going on. It's a wait and stay or just kind of wait and 
see what happens, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So anyway, I don't know if that answers anybody's question that's listening to this show. It's like, what he's rambling, but is he saying anything? Nobody knows, Taylor. Nobody knows. So I think that's that's true always, right? Is is nobody knows. Um nobody knew in 2007 what was going to happen in 2008 and nobody knows right now in 2020 what's going to happen for the rest of 2020 you know we're we're taking proactive measures to flatten the curve and you know all of that uh, but we don't know how bad it could it could get but to me it seems the most prudent action is to prepare for pretty a pretty rainy day you know, and not, not hope for everything to be all right and, and not plan on that, I yeah, suppose. Sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, lots going on. So, yeah. Well, hey, I, wanna, I also wanted to ask you, you know, yeah. I, we talk about mindset. And this is going to be a pretty hard topic shift on the show, okay. but we talk about mindset on the show a lot. And you've clearly, from my perspective, it seems like you made some pretty major mindset shifts in, you know, moving from being the maintenance man to now 4,500 units. So that's yeah. incredible. Go ahead um, and say it from maintenance man to millionaire. Maintenance man to millionaire. Millionaire is all is understating it. Let's be real. Is, Multi-millionaire. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it doesn't rhyme, right? Maintenance man has an M, man has an M and I guess it's multi-millionaire, multi-millionaire does too. Yeah, there you go, man. More ambush. I should have, re- I'm going to read, re- that's going to be the next volume, Taylor. Thank you. <laughs> there you go. Maintenance man to multimillionaire, a volume two by Glenn Gonzalez. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. I like that. Volume two. Yeah. Um, but, you know, in making that, that mindset shift, you know, you were, were rewinding to back, back doing that, the first deal where you're raising money from your uh, two investors, each at 75,000 and you're not putting in anything, you know, what did it take to really, you know, think that you could do that. Because a lot of people are going to say, well, they're never going to, they're just going to invest that 75 grand in this and then they're not going to put anything in or, you know, yeah. I don't have anything. How am I going to get it done? Like, like there's a lot of mentality. Yeah. Yeah. So, so let me talk a little bit about that. And what you're asking about is confidence, right? I mean, how do you get the confidence to go and ask other people for money, their money? You know, in that aspect, that small deal, 45 units, 150 grand, Grand, I told those investors, look, I don't have any money, but I'm good at what I do, right? So I, I brought the value that I, did. I was good at property management. And I had a lot of experience at that time. I started off as a maintenance guy. And I showed them, I said, this thing is going to be profitable. And I backed it up with like, you guys can get paid before I do. So, you know, when you take other people's money, investors' money, they put so much confidence in you, not just by what you say, but also by what you've done and who you are and your character. So those two people knew that I wouldn't take a dime out of that deal until I made sure they got made whole. They knew that they knew my personality and that's how I treat not just those investors, but all investors. I would forego some of my own profits these days just to make people whole if I, if I needed to. Um, I, I will tell you this, even in today's environment, now things are a little differently. I invest in money in, in every deal, that little ground up deal that we're building. I've already, we've already put in half a million dollars of our own money just to get it started. So, and just to get it through, well, gosh, we're in at 750,000 now paid for engineering architects, uh, you know, fees to the city, 
all that development fees. Um, we paid all that before a single investor. So, you know, if you're good at what you do, and, and, and I talk a lot about that in the book, actually, I talk about what you bring to the table is really what allows you to ask investors for money is because of what you bring to the table. And hopefully you bring your best you to the table. Hopefully you're perfected your craft and that you know what you're talking about and you're not just pretending. There are a lot of investors or syndicators out there that are just pretending to know what they're talking about and they don't actually know what they're talking about. And that's, I, I feel bad when investors come across some of those guys, you know, that, that just are kind of pretending it, pretending to, to, to know what they're talking about. So. Interesting. Yeah. Competence, competence, confidence, character, all pri- we're, we're, we're really hitting the alliteration here. You got the MMMMM in the book title and then all the C's in, in the skills, but. Dude, that's going to be volume three, Taylor, and you can write the forward for me. Dude, I love it. I'm Boom. In. <laughs> I'm in. Yeah. Nice. Well, I, I, you know, no matter what type of real estate folks are getting into, whether it's syndication or passive investing in syndication or buying a single family or whatever, you know, I, I really, that, that getting that first deal done, I yeah. think is, it's the hardest one. Yeah. Yeah. And, and stepping over that hurdle. Yeah, I suppose. And, and I got I like a funny story I could tell you, Taylor. I partnered with a single family house with my mom and, oh. and my stepdad. And the, this story is in the book also because you'll get to read it. It's, it's funny. But I was renting those. Uh, I was that manager at that little 60 unit deal in my first property management deal when I was a part time maintenance guy and part time manager. Anyway, somebody in the next door neighbor neighborhood came over to me because they, they're friends and said, Hey, look, we built a new house and we haven't sold our old house. And we really need to sell this one really bad and it has an assumable loan. Do you want to buy it? And I went and said, well, how much do you want for it? And they had discounted it quite a bit because they wanted to sell it really bad, but I knew how much I could rent it for. And so I did the math and I'm like, oh, we can assume his loan and put some money down and ah, I need $12,000. But do you remember that? That's when I was a college student. <laughs> I was going to school, working kind of, going to school full-time and working full-time. So I'm like, this is a good deal. I can't let this go. So I called my mom. I'm like, mom, I found the greatest rental property, single house. These guys are selling it at a discount because they're, they've got to get rid of it. You want to go in on it with me? And my mom said, sure. Sounds like a good deal. Wow. We need $12,000. She's like, I have 6,000 bucks. I'll be your partner. I'm like, great. So my mom had her 6,000, but guess what? Did I have 6,000? No. So we needed 12, she had six, I had zero. So I said, mom, can I borrow my half from you? And she laughed and she's like, I don't have $12,000. I only have $6,000. My mom was a nurse at the time and, and my stepdad worked at a, you know, in just miscellaneous jobs and, and I was a starving college student. So I'm like, well, mom, can't you just put it on a credit card? She's like, I could do that. I could get a cash advance on my credit card for $6,000. Wow. And I did the math and I said, well, how much is that going to cost? And she's like, let me call my bank and da, da, da. So sure enough, the rent that we collected covered the mortgage payment and the cash advance credit card payment and had about $150 wow. left over. So I'm like, this is a great deal. So <laughs> we rented it for about a year, year and a half. And then the tenant gave notice. 
and I called my mom. I said, mom, the, the tenant's moving out. And my mom just panicked, Taylor. She's like, what are we going to do? I had all my money tied up. You got a credit card that I can't make a credit card payment for. My mom, let's just sell the house. It's a hot market. So we sold the house and whew, sold it. We made $40,000 on that. After <laughs> off the credit card and my mom got her six grand. We had $40,000 to split. So I gave my mom $20,000 and I kept $20,000. And that was like the best. I mean, when you're a college student, Taylor, and you got a check for $20,000, my mom had never, I mean, she'd been working for years as a nurse. She'd never seen a check for $20,000, you know? So my mom thought I was brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, sometimes, like you said, you know, you could be in single family, you could be flipping houses, but I think the moral of that story is I knew the numbers, right? I had been renting these townhouses out there as I was the manager. So I knew how long it would take to rent it. I knew what I could rent it for because to some degree, I was an expert at my craft. Mm. I kind of, I kind of knew what was going on. And that house was right next to where I was renting these, these townhouses, so I knew, I knew we could make money on that. Um, and my mom trusted me, I guess, you know, if my mom can trust me, other investors can trust me too. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. You don't want to definitely don't want to lose your mom's money. You don't want to lose anybody's money. Yeah. Especially she, your mom's money. Yeah. She would still love me, but investors wouldn't. <laughs> well, <laughs> so that's like, true. <laughs> that's true. Well, that's awesome. Right now we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right, Glenn, I've got three questions. I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Bring them on. Let's hear them. All right. Number one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? So let's just talk real estate for a minute, right? I think the best investment I ever made in real estate was uh, on a portfolio of eight apartment complexes that I bought from one gentleman. His name's Ed. He and I had been friends for over a decade. And, and when he and I got to be friends at 70, I told him, I said, if you ever want to sell your company, call me and I'll buy it from you. And he's like, ha, 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 I'm never going to retire because he was like the sharpest 70-year-old I'd ever met in my life. Sure enough, 10 years later, he turned 80, 80, and then on his 81st birthday, something happened in physically, and he started rethinking what he's going to do with his portfolio and his company. So he called me. We struck a deal, and I bought 1500 units from this one guy and uh and and syndicated every one of those deals he allowed us to stagger the closing right there were eight wow. of them and we and we closed all eight in a six-month period that was very nice that he allowed me to do that but you know what that investment was taylor it was an investment in a relationship all all my deals all the money i've made honestly have come from relationships that guy that I told you about, John Gibson, he was sitting across the table from me that had those 44 units. He was my friend. He was my mentor. And that relationship made it, our, me and my, my boss and the other guy that we put, they put in 75, we made a million bucks off of a relationship. Well, I'll tell you, those eight deals that this guy, Ed, sold us, we ended up selling that portfolio probably two, two and a half, maybe three years later. And we probably made off of that our cut, right? Not including our investors. The average IRR for those deals was probably in the 30 to 40 range. 30 to 40 IRR. Now, one of them was an 86 IRR. 
and one of them was a 25, but the average, wow. 35 to 40 IRR, those eight, um, we made millions of dollars as a sponsor on that. Our investors made millions and millions of dollars, but that was from a 10-year relationship. So Taylor, my best investment that I've ever made is in relationships with people in this industry that I'm going to have for years to come. Nice. I love that. On the yeah. other side of that coin, we yeah. have the best investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? Worst investment. Uh, I had a business partner. We'd grown the company large enough to where we had to divide our responsibilities. I had been syndicating and putting deals together, but because I had so much experience in property management, we now had you know, 300 million in assets and I had a business partner. I'm like, one of us has to take the lead on acquisitions, mergers, you know, and the other needs to take over the asset management and property management. And I don't care which, but you know, I need your help doing one and I'll do one. Business part of like, he wanted to do the acquisition. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll focus on this half. Well, he put together a deal in, in Oklahoma and I flew out there as part of the due diligence and he'd only been there once and looked at everything on paper. And I, and I came back, I'm like, dude, uh, this deal in Oklahoma, you comped to, the wrong side of the tracks. I mean, the rents that you really want to project getting aren't the rents in this submarket. I mean, you're using the wrong comp sets. And he's like, dude, it's okay. We, you know, we've already raised the equity. We already got the debt, you know, the deal. You're just nervous. I'm like, ah, plus it's way out of state. And ah, dude, anything we make on acquisitions fees or construction, we're going to lose on this deal. And he's like, don't worry, I'll take full responsibility. Well, we bought that deal, Taylor, and we lost our shorts on that deal because we did not underwrite it properly. And in his own words, we already raised the debt and the equity, and that's not a reason to do deals. And so painful, painful lost um, all of 100% of our money that we put in and probably four or 500,000 beyond our initial equity. Man that we lost on that deal. So um, that was the worst deal ever. I won't tell you the name of it and I won't tell you when, but it was painful. <laughs> well, you know, the lessons live on. So hopefully, <laughs> yeah. hopefully it was early on and not, yeah. <laughs> and not later on. Yeah. Um, my favorite question at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson that you've learned in business and investing? You know what? Can I, can I share with you a story? Let's hear it. Love okay. it. So I'm selling a deal to uh, a guy named Tom. It's up in it's up in Fort Worth, and about a week before closing, the chiller breaks. If you've ever owned a property with these big chillers, you know, um, and boilers, they they're just they provide heat and air conditioning for the entire property, right? And this was a really old chiller, so it died. I had two choices: put a bandaid on it and close the transaction or come clean and disclose that it's broken and just buy the guy a new one, you know? And so I called the broker first and the broker's like, what? I said, the chiller broke. He's like, you gotta get fixed. I said, the, if I fix it, it's gonna break again in the near future. And he just said, great, deal's off, you know? Because the buyer had already put up non-refundable earnest money and at this point, that non-refundable earnest money was less than what it would cost to replace this chiller. Wow. So um, I said, I'll just buy the guy a new one. 
And the broker's like, what? I said, I'll just buy him a new one now. I'll order it, I'll put the money in escrow, and it just seems like the right thing to do. My business partner at the time was pretty furious. It's not with Obsidian Capital's previous business partner. He's like, we're not gonna do that. I said, dude, it just seems like the right thing to do. What if we were buying that deal and somebody put a Band-Aid on it and we were stuck with a broken chiller a week after closing? I mean, I would hate to be that guy. He's like, look, he's got non-refundable earnest money. Just sell it, put a Band-Aid on it, and move on. Like, dude, I don't feel good about that. So uh, I told the broker, I upset my own business partner. I told the broker, we're going to buy the guy a new one, and we're going to close. And we ordered it already. It won't be installed till after closing. But I put 50% down on the chiller, and the other 50% I'll put in an escrow with closing. Um, and the broker said, uh, in all of his years of doing real estate, he's never heard somebody willing to do that because they would negotiate something, right? And um, the buyer sent me an email and said, I don't know who you are, and I've never met you, but I'm already impressed with you. That was all he said. And we closed the transaction. Uh, that broker actually wrote the afterword on my book, <laughs> right? And he told that story. It's the afterward. Um, uh, he even put here, the story of Glenn Gonzalez is a true story. I'm his witness. <laughs> so nice. anyway, but uh, let's fast forward a little bit. After closing a month or two later, uh, I met a mastermind meeting in some state with a big meetup group. And we were going around the room doing introductions. And before they got to me, this guy stood up that was across the table. And he's like, I don't really want to introduce myself. My name's Tom who I want to introduce is that guy sitting over there and he pointed at me and I'm like, I don't know this guy, you know, who, what's he going to say? <laughs> I was a little nervous, you know, it's like, yeah. we're thinking who have I offended? You know, it's like, Oh my gosh. So um, he's like, I want to introduce you to Glenn Gonzalez. One of the best sellers I've ever met. He sold me the Westwood apartments and that guy bought me a new chiller a week before uh, closing. And and I realized who he was and he knew who I was, but I didn't, I didn't recognize because I'd never met him before. So um, the reason I share this story, because you said the most important lesson that I've learned in business is do the right thing. Just do the right thing. It doesn't matter whether you're a buyer or a seller or a lender or an appraiser or a maintenance guy or a host of a show, just do the right thing. And life will work out okay and that's the most important lesson i learned in business i love that i love the story i love that it came around that's awesome that's yeah. that's fantastic uh well thank you for everything you've shared today if folks want to learn more about you they want to get a copy of the book where can they find you great you know taylor my uh email is glenn with two n's at obsidiancapitalco.com so obsidiancapitalco.com and you can email me directly. If you want a copy of the book, you can just go onto Amazon, type in Maintenance Man and Millionaire, or you could type in my name, Glenn Gonzalez, and it'll pop up. And uh, if you have buyers that buy my book and they want me to sell, sign them, I'll meet them somewhere and sign them. We'll have uh, you know, a smoothie somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> After the, after the coronavirus. <laughs> after, yeah, so we got to maintain proper social yeah. distancing, but it will be over someday. 
It will be. This too shall pass. Yes, exactly. Well, Glenn, I really appreciate it. I love your whole story and I love all the lessons that you shared today. And, you know, I, I learned very well from stories. So I, I really appreciate that a lot of your lessons are in story format. So that yeah. really uh, rang true to me. So thank you for, uh, for joining us today. Peter, thanks it. for having me. I really enjoyed it. I appreciate you very much. And thanks for uh, hosting these shows and letting your listeners partake of all the stuff that you uh, get offered to them. So thanks. Oh, it's my great pleasure to everybody out there. Thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple podcasts is very big help. If you know anyone else, who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the fold. Thank you for tuning in once again. I hope you have a great day and a great rest of your week, and we'll talk to you on the next episode. Bye-bye.